So again, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our study. And what we would do today is continue with our 12th installment of the series. Today, as we continue, we will be in section six. We will continue in there, and we will be looking at events 129 to 139 as we look at the life of Jesus in chronological order. Now, in the last class, in the last class, um, Christ Jesus had come to Jerusalem, and while there, he did what he tended to have to do when he went to Jerusalem. He had to confront the religious leaders. He had to confront them because they had rejected him, and as a result of their rejecting him, he pronounced judgment not only upon them, but also upon the nation of Israel. And in pronouncing his judgment, he went about the business of describing the events that will take place when Jerusalem is destroyed in in the future, in 70 AD. The last scene sees Judas plotting with the Jewish leaders to betray Christ Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, this final event... Had, uh, seized, uh, this final event has been spread out over, we spread it out over um, six days. Day one being um, that Sunday, and we call that April 2nd, and we saw the events that take place, that took place rather, up through day four. So today we will be starting at day five. It's Thursday morning. And Jesus is preparing for the Passover meal. So would you join me in prayer? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you, Father, for this opportunity to continue to study of your word. Heavenly Father, it's a wonderful thing to know that Christ Jesus died for our sins, that Christ Jesus was resurrected, so that we will have the opportunity to have a resurrected life as well and live in eternity in heaven with you. Father, as we continue to listen to this lesson, Father, may we glean from it things that will help us in our spiritual walk. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So, again, it's Thursday. It's the fifth day. Let's call it April 6th. And what is happening here is Christ Jesus is sending his disciples to prepare for the Passover meal. So the Passover meal, it was going to be happening on the following day, um, which would say that um, it is pretty close to 6 p.m. On, on, uh, on, that, on, the, on that day anyway. So Jesus sends Peter and John ahead to prepare the meal, and he, he tells them uh, to go into the city. They will see a man carrying water. Is that a big deal? Why is, why is it a big deal? Mm-hmm. Okay. So why is it a big deal you see a man carrying water? That's it. That's it. Most of the time it would have been the women that do, doing this. So he tells them to go look for a man that's doing this. And he said that that man will take them to a room where they will prepare the meal. 
Now, in preparing the meal, what did that mean? That meant they had to get an animal, a lamb, sacrifice it in the temple. They had to cook the meat. They had to bake the unleavened bread, get baked unleavened bread. They had to prepare the bitter herbs, something similar to cucumbers, lettuce, bitter dressing, the wine, as well as cushions, cups, plates, water, and towels for the washing of feet. They had to have all of this ready. Again, just like what you all have already said, Jesus knew that they would find the man. Now, some people would say, ah, he set that up. He paid this man to stand there with this water. So when the disciples came in, they all know it's him. That's not it. When we look at the text, the text truly suggests that this was divine intervention. This was divine knowledge. And there was nothing pre-planned. It's what he foresaw. So we turn now to Friday, day six. So we're doing turn out of Friday, day six, uh, event 130, where Christ Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his apostles. Now, what, we, what happens when we look in the gospel? Well, we find that each gospel writer describes this key event, and each place is some details different from others. But Matthew and John were there for the whole time. And so in combining their accounts, what we seem to do is get a complete picture just from those two of what took place that night. So what took place? Jesus gathered the 12 in the upper room in order for them to eat the meal and celebrate the Passover. Peter and John, Peter and John uh, had set up the dinner and they of course thought, well, we should be sitting closer to him. So they did, and they, they were responsible for that. But as a result, we know that there was a dispute because some people were thinking that uh, they wanted to know who would be... Hmm, interesting. Who would be the greatest? So Jesus tells them that the greatest are those who would serve, and he promises that they will be with him in the kingdom. But Jesus does something else. Uh, after this teaching, what he does is he gets the towel, he gets the water... And he goes around and he washes each of the apostles' feet, including Judas. Now, normally, um, when these events happen, a servant person would be available uh, to wash the the people's feet. But uh, when the apostles came Mm -hmm. in, none of them, they saw the water, they saw the towels, but none of them said, we're going to go about the business of washing anyone's feet. We're going to sit down and wait for someone to do it for us. But Jesus does this in order to demonstrate his point about servanthood. He came to serve. So after taking his place at the table, Christ Jesus indicates that there is a betrayer, a betrayer among them. And he shows John and Peter who this person is by dipping the bread into uh, the bitter herbs and giving it to Judas. And at this time, we find that Judas leaves the room. So after Jesus, Judas leaves the room, what Christ Jesus does is he prays. He prays, and, 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 and uh, really about what they're going to do after his death, about things going to take place after his death. So he prays for Peter. He prays for Peter to be saved from Satan's attacks. He foretells his abandonment of him and how he would restore them. 
he tells them that he will meet them again in Galilee. All of these things take place as they are sharing a traditional Passover meal. Event 131. Event 131, this is when Jesus initiates the Passover. And we see the text there that this is referring to. Now, during this time, at the time of Jesus, what we find is that the Jews ate the Passover meal, and they did it in a, in a certain way. For instance, the meat represented the sacrifice uh, slain on their behalf. The bitter herbs represented their bitter experience in Egypt. The unleavened bread represented the haste in which they left Egypt. The wine represented two things, the blood shed in Egypt, but also the good life in the promised land. The leader of the household would offer prayers, eat and drink the four cups of wine, and the others would follow. And at some point, at some point, the child would ask that million-dollar question. What is the million-dollar question that children always ask? You know what it is. Why? <laughs> that is the million-dollar question that children always ask. The child would ask, why were they doing this? And the leader would go about the business of retelling the account of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. Jesus served as leader and led them through the meal. So once the meal was done and there remained only one piece of bread and one cup of wine, he changed the significance of the meal. He changed the significance into what we see today. From now on, the bread would represent his body offered for sins. From now on, the wine would represent his blood shed for all of us to obtain eternal life, for all sinners to obtain eternal, eternal life. The memorial meal would no longer remember the Jewish the Jews' freedom from Egyptian bondage, but it would now represent or uh, commemorate their personal freedom from the bondage of sin. Why? Because of his body, because of his blood. Event 132. <laughs> you know, I'm beginning to think I need one. <laughs> so we have the farewell address and prayer. Now, when you see the text there. It's John 14, 1 through 17, 26. What we find is this is the longest uninterrupted passage where Christ Jesus speaks that we can find in the New Testament. The long prayer and exhortation was given while they were standing, according to John 14 to verse 31. They were standing in the upper room, and it covers many things. For instance, he gives them an assurance that he is the way to heaven, and he will prepare a way for them. He guarantees that their request to God in his name will be heard, will be answered. He promises them the coming of the Holy Spirit to comfort and teach them. He provides an exhortation to remain faithful and fruitful and draw strength from him as you draw strength from a vine, or as a plant draws strength from the vine. 
but he's not done. He warns them of future persecutions. He gives them an explanation of what the Holy Spirit will do for them when he comes. So let's stop there for a second. I think everyone in here is a Christian, been baptized, which means the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us. Okay, so with that said, what is the Holy Spirit doing for you? I'm sorry, what's that? Aiding us in our prayer life. He is our helper. Okay. He is our helper. Those situations that we find ourselves having to deal with, he is there to help us through those. Yes. He convicts us of of sin. All right. Yes. Comfort and confidence. Okay. All right. Anyone else? I would venture to say I'm not encountering a number of people in here, but the Holy Spirit is doing something, that many things each day (laughs) for the number of people in this room, and you you can spread out from here. So I want to condense what everybody said into three things. The Holy Spirit convicts, comforts, inspires. But also, he encourages them not to quit when they are rejected by the world. He said, don't quit that he will be with them. He promised us that way back when. He promised to give them peace. So at this point, all of them confirmed their faith. And one last thing about this prayer, this prayer to God on their behalf, this prayer to God on their behalf was so that God would unite, protect, and glorify himself through them. So once he finishes this long discourse, they sing what's referred to as the Halil. That's Psalms 115 through 118. They sang this and they depart from the upper room, which takes us to event number 133. So here you find him in the garden and we see the agony with which he went through in looking at the cup that he had to drink, if you will. The Mount of Olives was uh, on the east side of Jerusalem, and uh, it was covered with olive trees, and they even had an olive press there for pressing the olives. So Jesus takes the 11 apostles, which Judas has already gone off in another direction. Jesus takes the 11 apostles there with him to pray, but once they got there, he takes uh, Peter, James, and John a little bit deeper into the garden, and then he finds a secluded place for him to pray. And three times he returns to find the apostles sleeping while he was agonizing in prayer concerning what was to take place for him. So his final prayer is so condensed that we are told that he sweat, his, his sweat became like drops of blood. 
But eventually, what does he do? He accepts what is to happen as the will of God for his crucifixion. Now, here's the question. Him being the son of God, why was he agonizing so much over this? Why was he agonizing? What part of him was in agony? The human side, yeah. I know we say this a lot, you know, we're Christians and we die today, we can go to heaven, but I don't see any of us standing out in the middle of the bar road when the traffic is out there saying, hit me, hit me, hit me, because that's our human nature. Our human nature is survival. It really is. Our human nature is survival. But he shows us, Christ Jesus shows us how to live, and he shows us how to die. <laughs> he shows us how to do both. He shows us how to live and how to die. So in the meanwhile, Judas has organized his mob, and they're coming to seize him. They're coming to seize Christ Jesus. And he betrays Christ Jesus by a kiss on the cheek. The one that I kiss, that is the one you need to arrest. So Peter, we're told, cuts off the ear of Malchus, and we're also told in Luke that Christ Jesus picks it up and he heals that ear. And that's, I believe, the last miracle that we see recorded. And the mob takes Christ Jesus away so he can be tried and crucified. Meanwhile, the apostles scatter. Now, Peter and John, they follow to see what's going to happen with Christ Jesus. So we get to 134. We find Jesus before the high priest. Now, at first, Jesus is brought before Annas. He is uh, Caiaphas, the high priest's uh, father. And eventually a council is convened in the middle of the night with the high priest presiding over this council. In the meantime, Peter, and some people say, well, John was there too, but every place I read in the Bible says Peter, who was the one accosted by this, by this servant girl, had worked their way into the courtyard, and they is challenged there as a disciple of the prisoner Jesus. And we are told that he vehemently denies three times that he did not know this man. What is the difference between vehemently denying something and just saying, I don't know him? What is the difference? The intensity. The intensity. It's one thing to say, I don't know the guy. (laughs) But no, he was outright indignant about it he was outright indignant about it I don't know him so during this trial which was illegal and it was illegal because it was held at night witnesses are brought forward to accuse Jesus of doing all these things but they were all contradictory so finally the high priest said you know what I'm going to the source if you will and he goes directly to Christ Jesus and asks him to acknowledge his divine divinity And based on the confession of Christ Jesus, the high priest condemns Christ Jesus to suffer and die on the cross. He condemns him for blasphemy. And they began to slap him. They began to taunt him. Ebit 135. I have a big question for you guys at the end. This is going to be a good one. You're going to love it. You guys going to like it so much? Ooh. And... Jerry, I'm going to take you up on that. (laughs) So, event 135, we find Jesus before Pilate as well as Herod. 
So the Jews were not allowed to execute anyone. They, they were Jews. They just couldn't do that. They had to convince the Roman officials that this man was deserving of death. So Pilate, who was the proconsul, uh, he was brought before him. And now he had control of the province with his Roman soldiers. But what we find out is this. He also appointed the high priest. He controlled the treasury. He, uh, he even maintained the, the garments that the high priest were to wear at the festivals. When there was a festival, the high priest had to go to, to Pilate to get their garments from him. So Jesus' appearance before Pilate occurred as follows. The Jews bring Jesus accusing him and demanding that Pilate put him to death. Pilate questions Jesus and he sends him off to Herod. Herod gets him over there and he wants a miracle, which Christ Jesus doesn't give him. So he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate questioned Jesus again, finding no reason at all to execute this man. So he said, okay, he said, okay this is the uh, Passover time, so I can release one prisoner, so ha, we can release him. No, what do they want? They want Barabbas. They would prefer a killer over an innocent man. So Pilate's wife warns him against condemning Jesus, but Pilate didn't want to have any issues with the people, uh, decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and crucify him. So he turns him over to the soldiers. They begin to torture him. They begin to beat him. They begin to prepare him for ex- for execution of crucifixion. Was there a purpose behind all of this beating? Do you think there was a purpose behind all of this beating? They're going to kill you anyway. Why don't they just take you out there, put you on the cross, and hang you up? But no, they beat him first. Badly. Was there a purpose behind all of that? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. To send a message to others, humiliated, humiliation, degraded, whole nine yards. And there's one other one to go with that. And I've heard people say this. Never been there myself, but I heard people say it. Where they have been in so much pain, they wanted to die. I spent a night in a hospital room with a brother by the name of Ed Crockett. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. He was in so much pain. He was carrying on a conversation with somebody. And he said, uh, and that he was mumbling though, but he spoke very clearly in the end. He didn't die right then, but he spoke very clearly in the end. And he said this, why don't you just let me die then? The man was in pain. The man was in agony. So I can see here where we're going to beat you so bad. We're going to humiliate you so bad. You're going to almost be begging us to hang you on this cross. Event 136. Oh, you got it, Josh. Thank you. And I got long arms, too. That helps. So after seeing what had happened, Judas is stricken with guilt because he has betrayed an innocent man. So what does, but even though he knows he's betrayed an innocent man, he still doesn't believe that he is the Messiah. But he knows that Jesus is innocent. So what does he do? He returns the money, and instead of asking for forgiveness, he hangs himself in despair. Event 137 
Jesus is crucified. So we're told that after Jesus is beaten terribly, he's given his heavy cross that he needs to carry to his execution. We know that the weight became unbearable, and a gentleman by the name of Simon for Cyrene, from Cyrene was uh, tasked to help him carry that cross to Golgotha, the, the place of the skull. And he is offered drug, wine, to enable him to, to uh, handle the pain, if you will, while they're crucifying him, and also limit his resistance, but he refuses that. He is crucified between two thieves, and the crowd are mocking him and saying to him, save yourself. But one of the thieves is saying, save us too. <laughs> Don't leave us up here. Bring us down too. And once he is secured with nails and hoisted up upright and dropped into the hole, he asked the father this. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Romans put a sign above his head that says King of the Jews. And, of course, the Jewish leaders didn't like that. But Pilate drew a line there. He said, you know what? What is up there is up there, and it's not going to come down. It's not going to change. So it stayed up there. We get to event 138. Okay. Where Christ Jesus gives up his life on the cross. Okay. We're just going to go to event 138. We'll come to 139. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. Whew. Anyway. So, so it's amazing how each writer provides an enormous amount of details as to what happened during the few hours that Christ Jesus was on the cross. We find that one of the thieves repents for all the things that he said. He asked Jesus to save him, and Jesus promised him he would be with him in paradise. We find that the soldiers gamble for and divide his clothing. We find that Jesus gave the charge of his mother to, to John. We see that Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus saying that he is thirsty. We see Jesus saying that his mission is complete and that he says it is finished. He dies offering up his life to God with these words. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. At this point, the veil in the temple, we are told, to the entrance of the temple, in the, to the, in the temple, to the entrance of the holies of holies, was torn into. We find we are told that many dead came out of their tomb, but they did not come out until after Christ Jesus was resurrected. There was an earthquake, and because of these signs, we are told that the centurion at the foot of the cross believed. Once he died. The soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and the burial process began. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea comes to claim the body from Pilate, and he and Nicodemus takes his body and wraps it and places it in a new tomb that belonged to Joseph. We are told that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, who is also Jesus' aunt, they remained by the tomb until sunset and the beginning of the Sabbath. 
we're told that their goal was to properly prepare the body for burial, but because the Sabbath was approaching, they had to stop at sunset. They were planning to return early Sunday morning to finish the process. So Jesus was placed in the tomb day one on Friday. So now we're into the seventh day, Saturday, at 6 p.m. that evening on, on Friday. It started. That's April 7th. The Lord has been buried. The crowds are dispersed. But the Jews are still trying to make sure. They are trying to make sure that his influence is extinguished. He's dead. We want his cause dead. (laughs) I give up. (laughs) I give up. So the Lord, so, so Pilate seals, places a seal on the tomb. Now the Jewish leaders, they were afraid of this. They were afraid that Jesus follows what would come, steal the body, and then tell everybody he was resurrected. So, and that would keep the movement alive. So Pilate, not only puts a seal on the tomb, he even allows them to put guards there to avoid tampering. And also, and so that way they felt the body would not be removed. This last lesson for today, and it's not a lesson, it's an observation. It's an observation. What I'm about to say is going to sound like double talk. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. When it comes to Christianity and our walk of faith, what do you perceive as keeping the main thing, the main thing? Okay, Jesus or the gospel, which points to Jesus, is the main thing. Okay, anyone else? The fear of God is the main thing. Anyone else? Now, I thought when I asked that question, we were going to run out of time. When we look in the gospel what we find is the writers spend more time writing about the events that covered a few hours of Jesus' death and resurrection than all the other things regarding his three years of ministry the Holy Spirit makes this a central event in our religion and if this is so there are some things we need to remember. We need to remember to understand and teach this is our central doctrine. This being Jesus' death 
and resurrection was done to save mankind. It was done to save mankind. Rather than get caught up on all of these other side issues. During the Christmas holidays, some would spend more time arguing or debating whether Christ Jesus was born on December 25th or not versus the reason he was here. That his, he suffered and died on the cross for our sins to save mankind. But we want to argue about December 25th. We want to argue about, did he actually die, raise, rise on Easter Sunday? I don't care. He rose. <laughs> and if he hadn't, we would be wasting our time. Instrumental music. No, we don't use it. But why are we having this big debate about it? Why don't we just say, okay, we don't use it here, but let's talk about why we're doing this. We're doing this because Christ Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins, gave of his life. He was resurrected. But because he was resurrected, we have the opportunity to be resurrected in newness of life too. We have the opportunity to have the hope that is necessary to spend an eternity in heaven. That's what we need to be talking about rather than all these side issues. And then, brothers, we're the problem sometimes ourselves because within, we want to bring up all of these side issues to sidetrack us, to keep us from doing what we need to be doing. Nikita Khrushchev had a statement a long time ago, and he said this, I will destroy America from within. We can destroy the church from within because of us wanting to bring up all these side issues. And spend less time talking about the reason Christ Jesus came to this earth and to suffer and die for our sins. The reason he was resurrected. Why? For us. To save us. To save mankind. We need to give greater importance to sharing the Lord's Supper each week. Why? Because it represents the central issue of our spiritual lives. And when we do the focus... When we do the focus for the Lord's Supper, if we're doing it, we need to remember and get back to this. The focus that we're doing, they're supposed to be about Christ Jesus. Not about me and not about mine. Sometimes we spend too much time talking about me and what I did, me and my family and what they did. How about concentrating on what Christ Jesus did? The focus is not a, a Bible study. Is not a sermon. It's none of that. I think Jerry put it in perspective a long time ago. He said, you know, five to seven minutes is all we need. And really it is. It's a focus on Christ Jesus. But if I got to start out talking about me for 10 minutes and then talking about somebody in my household for another 10, then eventually I get around to Christ Jesus for two seconds. Where was the focus on Christ Jesus at? There wasn't any. So let us remember that. We must not only speak where the Bible speaks, but we must emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. So, so I have one last question. And we got, ooh, we got a long time to discuss this. So I want us to think for a minute. Think of all that Jesus endured during his betrayal, during his arrest during his trial, 
during his time upon that cross. Now, as many people as there are in here, there are probably just many different answers and none of them are wrong. None of them are wrong. So think about that. And what would you say was the most severe? And what would you say it indicates? Was it the betrayal? Was it the arrest? Was it the trial? Was it the cross? Was it all of the above? And what does it indicate? The floor is open. Yes. The rejection by God when he Mm. Stephen said when God had to forsake him, when he cried out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabbatani, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? I mean, really, when you read that, <laughs> you can almost feel the agony and the pain if you read it correctly. If you just read it as words, it doesn't really sound like anything. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabbatani, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? You read that with the intensity. My God, my God. Why have thou forsaken me? Yes. All of it. Why? All of it, all of it, because all of that was necessary for our salvation. Like I said, there are no wrong answers. <laughs> there are no wrong answers. Yes. Now, I missed the beginning of what you said, though. Bearing our sins. Okay. Bearing our sins. Bearing our sins. And, and, and I like where Mike was going with that. Because had he not, <laughs> look where we would be. Look where we would be. Yes. Ah. He had never experienced sin before. Pain, rejection, yes, but never sin before. All right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. The resurrection changed everything. If Christ Jesus had not resurrected, we wouldn't be here. Or 
worse than that, we would be here and have no hope. <laughs> and that's about as ugly as it could get to be here and have no hope. Yes. Brother Scott said the anticipation, the anticipation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, surprises are nice sometimes. But <laughs> when you know it, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, Again, I want to thank Brother Bob because he's allowing me to finish up week number 13, uh, lesson number 13. Unfortunately, it can't happen until uh, two weeks from now because next week we have the uh, Memorial Day breakfast at 9 o'clock. So everyone is invited to that. Come over and chow down before we go into our 10 o'clock service. And... uh, and so I will finish up Lesson 13 to close this series out on June 4th, I believe it is. And then the following week, uh, Brother Bob and uh, Brother Tim will start their class in here. So thank you all again for your comments and thank you for being here.